this morning. And this song lets us know on that day when we gather together around God's throne, the singing will be better, be sweeter and nobler. Well, good morning. Uh, y'all was out late trick-or-treating last night? What's up? Good morning. Good to see y'all this morning. Welcome to this gathering of the ARC Church family. If you're visiting with us for the first time, uh, I'm Pastor Thabiti Anubile. Most folks just call me Pastor T or call me Thabiti. Um, on behalf of the church family, welcome. We're glad that you are gathered with us this morning. And uh, we just want to acknowledge you. We don't want to embarrass you or put you on the spot. But if you're visiting with us this morning for the first time, uh, we'd love to just welcome you with a hand clap of praise to God for you. So if any visitors here for the first time, would please stand. Let us welcome you this morning. Amen. 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 Praise God. Praise God. We, we praise God for you. We can't think of any place we would rather you be uh, than with us. We hope you have felt at home already, and uh, we pray that you feel more and more at home as we continue to worship the Lord our God. Uh, if you're here this morning and you're looking for a church family, um, let me suggest to you that there are some churches you want to join and some that you may not want to join. Uh, if you want to join a church that's got a big building and everything in place and uh, slick programs, we may not be that church. We're in a, uh, you know, just the obvious, right? We're in an in a elementary school, in a gym, and we're having a good time, right? Uh, if you want to join a church that, uh, I don't know, has a thousand ministries and a thousand ways in which they're doing a lot of marvelous things and a church that has a big name for itself, we're probably not that church. We're that church for people who don't take themselves seriously, but do take Jesus seriously. We're that church for people who want to be a part of a family and who in that family wants to be on mission, wants to make sure that the gospel of Jesus Christ as we say in our little mission statement, goes to the four corners of the block and the four corners of the globe. And so if you're looking for a church like that, there are, by God's grace, many churches like that. We hope to be one of them, and we hope that you would uh, stick around and get to know us a little bit after the service and continue to come back with us in worship uh, as we try to grow together in Christ. Amen? All right. Well, this morning you have uh, landed near the end of a series that we've been in for about 28 weeks called uh, We Believe. And in that series, what we've been trying to do as a new church, just about six months old, what we've been trying to do right at the beginning of our life together as a Christian family is to kind of nail down what it is we believe. What it is we believe the Bible teaches about a number of essential doctrines or teachings of the Christian faith. And the statement of faith that we use is called the London Baptist Confession. It was written in 1689 by ministers in London, England, and it served the church now for over 300 years. And so we, we sort of stand in that family of churches that, that trace their theology, that trace their beliefs back to those Christians in the earlier part of the Reformation when Protestants broke away from Roman Catholics. When we were celebrating that, or could have been celebrating that, even on yesterday. But yesterday was the anniversary of Martin Luther, that German monk, who nailed his 95 theses on the church door in Wittenberg, Germany, thus launching what we call the Protestant Reformation. We are descended in belief from those churches, and we discover, as every generation discovers, that we need to, in our own time, in our own day, put forth again the truth that we believe, and put forth again the truth that marks us out. 
So we've in these last several weeks been in our statement of faith. And this morning we come to another doctrine that we want to be clear on. And it's called the Lord's Supper. It's probably something many of you, if you've been around church at all, you've heard of the Lord's Supper and you've probably partaken of the Lord's Supper. Uh, And this morning what we want to do in the sermon is turn to Matthew chapter 26. And we want to go to that scene in Matthew's gospel where this supper, which we will take in a moment, was established by Jesus himself. And in some ways, what I want to do is think of this sermon as an extended meditation in preparation for the supper. Think of this sermon as both a window into that first night when Jesus gathered with his disciples, redefined the Passover. But also think of it as a window into our own lives as we come to remember his sacrifice and to look forward to his coming. Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 14. This is God's word. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, The disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, is it I, Lord? He answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The son of man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Let's pray together. Father, we long for this day. When we shall drink the, the wine of your kingdom with your son, our king. We, we long for this day. When we shall be gathered together and our warfare is over. And we shall sup with you. And we shall see you. 
Until that day, Lord, feed us. Feed us by faith upon your Son, his broken body and shed blood for us. Until that day, O Lord, supply to us our, our every need as we seek your kingdom and your righteousness. But in every way, O Lord, lift our hearts toward heaven. Lift our hearts toward glory. Lift our hearts toward you. Even this morning, in the preaching of your word, in the hearing of your word, in the supper, lift us heavenward, we ask. In Jesus' name. Amen. If you're taking notes this morning, we want to hang our thoughts on three observations. Three simple observations working through these verses. Number one, we want to see that Judas schemes. Judas schemes, S-C-H-E-M-E-S. We see that in verses 14 to 16. Number two, we want to observe that Jesus sees. That Jesus sees. We'll see that in verses 17 to 25. And then number three, verses 26 to 29, we want to observe that Jesus saves. Jesus saves. Judas schemes, Jesus sees, and Jesus saves. Look with me in verses 14 to 16. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver, and from that moment... He sought an opportunity to betray him. And that little word then that begins this section is a word that's easy to drive by, to sort of pay no attention to, but it's linking these verses with the verses that have preceded it. It's sort of putting us in a particular context. Notice back in chapter 26, verses 1 to 2, Jesus has began to predict his death. In fact, he says in just two days, the Son of Man will be crucified and killed and then he will be raised again on the third day. And not only is Jesus predicting his death, but notice there in verses 3 to 5, the Jewish leaders are plotting his death. They gather in the palace of the high priest. This goes to the highest levels of Jewish religious leadership. His name was Caiaphas, and we're told there in verse 4, they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth, secretly, sneakily, and kill him. Why? They want to do it in secret. Verse 5, they feared the people. They didn't want an uproar of the people here at this religious holiday. This is a time where all of Judea would have been coming to Jerusalem to observe the feast. And so everybody who's anybody and everybody who's nobody is there in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And the last thing the religious leaders want is a mob. So they got to do this sneakily. I've got to do this craftily, under the cover of dark, with plausible deniability. And then notice, not only is Jesus predicting his death, and not only the Jewish leaders plotting his death, but, but notice when we come down to verses 6 to 13, there's a woman who comes to Simon the leper's house, in a little town called Bethany, where Jesus is. And she breaks her alabaster jar full of precious ointment. And she anoints the Lord. And did you notice there that the disciples, they feel some kind of way about it. Verse 8, when the disciples saw it, they were indignant. Saying, why this waste? 
For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. They sound real religious, don't they? They sound real pious, don't they? So the Lord is predicting his death. The Jewish leaders are angry enough to kill Jesus. They don't want to aggravate the mob lest they become angry too. And here now, even his own disciples are angry at this display of devotion to the Lord. The Lord's just swimming in a sea of anger, isn't he? It's then that our text opens. In the midst of all of this plotting and all of this anger, it's then that we come to verses 14 and 16 and we see Jesus, or excuse me, Judas scheming. Now I don't know, I don't know about you, but I love crime shows. I, I love movies. A good whodunit, you know, a good suspense thriller where the detectives have to catch the bad guy and I especially love it when the bad guy's really clever. He's slick. He can't, they don't even know who he is really, right? And, and the detectives have got to put a, a case together against him. And if you like crime dramas, you know that the detectives have to have three things, don't they, to build a case. They've got to have motive, they've got to have means, and they've got to have opportunity. Isn't that right, brother? You, you, in, you in the police academy. You've got to have motives, you've got to have means, and you've got to have opportunities. Verses 14 to 16 give us those three things for Ju Judas. Notice number one, verse 14, his means. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest. It's in that phrase, one of the twelve. He's one of Jesus' twelve apostles. He's in the inner circle. There's, there's this freedom that he has with Jesus. Indeed, there's friendship that he has with Jesus. And his friendship is going to be the means that he uses to betray the Lord. He has open access to, to Jesus. He travels with Jesus. He sleeps in camps with Jesus. He, he eats with Jesus. He's, he's one of the closest of Jesus' associates. And that friendship is going to be the means, the method that he uses to betray the Lord. He's got means. He's got motive, too. Notice there in verse 15. He goes to the chief priests, and it's Judas who says, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. Really, he has two motives. One is expressed right here in verse 15. He's motivated by greed. It's striking that when we read Matthew's gospel, and we look at verses 8 and 9, where we see the disciples indignant, and they want to know, why are you spending all this oil to anoint Jesus when this could have been sold and given to the poor? It's John who tells us in his gospel that it's actually Judas who said that. And it's John who gives us this juicy little detail that Judas was the one who kept the money bag and he used to help himself to what was in the money bag. And the reason he says this is not because he cares so much about the poor, it's because he cares about his pocket. It's motivated by greed. It's money he wants. It's money he's after. Here's a man who has a price. He sells Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. If, if you were an Old Testament Jewish person who had memorized the law, you would know that this is referred to in Exodus 21 as the price that you are to pay when your ox kills somebody else's slave. He sells Jesus out for the price of a dead slave. He didn't recognize the value of a living king. It's motivated by greed, but not just greed. 
is John who also tells us in John 13, verse 2, that it was Satan who put into Judas's heart to betray the Lord. That was his motive. Satanic influence and materialistic greed. And when we're motivated by money, and when we're under the influence of the world and the flesh and the devil, there is no limit to what we will do, even selling out the Lord. He had means, he had motive. Verse 16 tells us about his opportunity. He has this secret meeting with the Jewish leaders and he leaves from that moment. And verse 16 says, and from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now, Judas is never going to go to sleep. Judas is never going to miss an opportunity. His eyes are peeled. He's on the alert. He's actively seeking a chance to sell out Christ. And he does it. If you jump down to verses 47 to 56, we get there to recounting of Judas' betrayal. Jesus is with the disciples and he's speaking. Verse 47, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve. And with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer, that's what the Bible calls him. The betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. He came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. And they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. Betrayed our Lord with a kiss. He found that opportunity. He sold himself cheaply. Now what should be striking to us about Judas is that it's possible to have walked with Jesus for three entire years, to have heard him teach, to have seen his miracles, to have observed his way of life, and betray him. It's possible to be so close to Jesus physically as to kiss him on the cheek, and so far from him spiritually, as to be described as the Bible does, as the son of perdition. Religious activity and religious habit is not the same thing as a real participation with Christ. Doing the right things, being in the right places spiritually, that's good. But it's not quite the same thing as being loyal to Jesus. Even today, we have many churches that, where there are many people, it seems to me, and forgive me if I'm judging wrongly, you can tell me after the service, but it seems to me there are many churches and many people who would gladly follow Jesus for money. Yeah. If Jesus will make them wealthy, if Jesus will put 30 pieces of silver in their pocket, if Jesus would supply all their needs and cause them no trouble, there are many people, it seems to me, who would be happy to follow Jesus, but that's just Judas' scheming. 
The only difference is Judas had an opportunity to sell him out. How how should we characterize a life in verse 16 that's lived constantly seeking opportunity to betray Jesus? What a wretched life. What an uncertain life. What a painful, broken life. And if we want to just sort of bring the text down to our day, isn't it the case that, again, there are many, I fear, who would claim to know Jesus, but their lives on inspection just might be a constant seeking out how we may betray him. Not, not with the selling of him for silver, but the selling of ourselves to sin. The plotting to engage in sins of all manner. Sexual immorality. Pornography. The plotting of selling ourselves in drugs and alcohol and There are many ways to claim to know Christ and yet live in a way that betrays his name. It's frightening. Here's the wonderful thing about these three verses. Jesus knows that Judas is going to betray him. It's no surprise to Jesus. He's not taken off guard by this. It is a real betrayal, but he sees it coming. He could say in verse 24 that it was written of him that this should happen. And and in other places in the gospel, in John chapter 7, I believe it is, very early, long before this supper, Jesus begins to say, one of you will betray me. He he knows that there is one who is predestined, who is ordained to, to sell him out in this way. The wonderful thing is, Jesus befriends him anyway. Jesus welcomes him at his table anyway. Jesus loves him as if he were just like the other 11 disciples and apostles. And not only does Jesus love the betrayer, but Jesus knows what it's like to be betrayed. This is what I think is in mind in Hebrews 4, 15 or so, where the writer of Hebrews says that we have such a high priest who can identify with us, one who's been tempted in every way as we have, yet was without sin. You know, sometimes in our pain, like being betrayed. Anybody ever been betrayed by a friend? Sometimes we think that's so unique a pain that nobody else experiences. And the Bible is showing us in this text and teaching us in Hebrews 4, no, 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 no. There's nothing that has happened to us that tempts us that Christ is not familiar with. So when we're betrayed, the last thing we want to do is trust, isn't it? And there is Jesus, our great high priest, saying, no, I know what that's like. You can trust me. You can trust me with your heart. You can trust me with your life. You can trust me with all of yourself. I'm the one who knows what it's like to be betrayed and also the one who is without sin. I won't betray you. I won't leave you. I won't forsake you. This is the Jesus we worship this morning. 
This is the Jesus we come to at the table. This is the one to whom we bring our sins and our guilt and our shame. For he knows and he loves. Judas schemes. But notice now, Jesus sees. This is what we this is what we summarize, these are the words we use to summarize verses 17 to 25. And Jesus sees two things in particular. He sees the time and he sees our hearts. Notice in verses 17 to 19, he, he sees the time. He says, now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city to a certain man and said to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Now, there are some things about this little paragraph that are, that are wonderfully ordinary. And then there are these hints of the truly extraordinary. It's Passover. That's an ordinary time in some ways. Ever since Exodus, where Matt read for us the, the founding of Passover, the establishment of Passover. Now, for centuries, Jewish people have observed this meal. The Passover commemorates that time in Egypt when Israel was in bondage, when God led them out of their bondage in Israel, and God did this wonderful thing where he instructed them to, to kill a lamb and to take the blood of the lamb and to put it on the doorposts of their houses. Because that night, the angel of death was going to go through Egypt. And as a judgment on Egypt, the angel of death would strike the firstborn son of every home. But on every house where blood was smeared across the doorpost, the angel would see the blood and pass over them. Now, this is a high time of celebration in Israel. This is, this is Israel's kind of Christmas. And just like Christmas for us, there's all of this celebration and all of this busyness and the great temptation is to miss the extraordinary. Doesn't that happen to us at Christmas? We, we prepare ourselves to celebrate the birth of Christ, but we spend our time running back and forth to the mall, trying to find the right gifts. That usually takes you to about midnight on Christmas Eve, and then you got to wrap the stuff and you're looking in the closet for last year's bags and stuff. You're pulling out bags because you didn't get enough bags. You didn't have enough. You're just busy making preparations. And there's, there's cooking that's going on because tomorrow is Christmas and the family's coming over and we're going to eat Christmas dinner and open presents. And all of that happens. And, and you look up as happened one year when Afia was about three years old and we went to my parents' house for, for Christmas. And we had been teaching her that Christmas is Jesus' birthday and we celebrate his birthday and Christmas came, and we opened gifts, and we had dinner, and the family came, and the, and the family left, and she was sitting three years old on my lap in my mom's recliner, and she just kind of looked at me as I'm watching the football game, and she says, Dad, when are we going to celebrate Christmas? We missed it. In her little three-year-old mind, with all of that beehive of activity, we missed it. And here are the disciples talking to Jesus, asking where are we going to celebrate the Passover. And Jesus says a couple of extraordinary things that they missed and we could miss. Notice the first thing in verse 17. It's actually Matthew who gives us this detail. On the first day 
of unleavened bread. Now, if we're not Jewish, we, we maybe move right past that again, but, but there are no details wasted in Scripture. God's not just using extra words. Uh, the words are there for a purpose. And maybe when you heard Matt read the Scripture from Exodus, you might have heard what happens on the first day of unleavened bread. This begins a, a week-long celebration of unleavened bread where all the yeast is to be removed from the house. And all of the, the bread that's eaten is bread that's baked without yeast. And as, as wife said earlier in the service, that yeast is symbolic of sin. And so this is a time of the cleansing of God's people of their sin, the removal of sin from their presence. And if you eat yeast, you're cut off from the feast and cut off for Israel for the rest of the week. And so on this day, the, the day, the, the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread is the removal of sin. But also, the gospel writers tell us on this day, usually between the hours of 2 p.m. and 5 p.m., the Passover lamb is slaughtered. And there's a tremendous connection there. That the removal of sin, the covering of sin, is symbolized by the slaughtering of the Passover lamb. Here's the second thing that's interesting in this text. Jesus says to them, go into town, find a certain man, and tell him that not just I'm coming to your house for the Passover meal. Did you notice what he said before that? My time is at hand. Standing behind those words is the cross, beloved. Jesus here is telling them, as he had told them in verses 1 and 2, that his death was upon him. That it was time for the cross. He's, he's fixed his face on Calvary. It's time now that he become the Passover lamb. That he become the one that is sacrificed for the removal of the yeast. For the cleansing of sin. Verse 19 is striking. The disciples did as Jesus had predicted them. And they prepared the Passover. Why is that striking? Well, it's a wonderful obedience, isn't it? But it's a grand adventure in missing the point. They were preparing for just another Passover. This would be the Passover that fulfilled all the others, that redefined everything. Jesus sees it's time. It's time for him to give his life as a ransom for sin. It's time for him to go to Calvary's cross and there suffer the Father's wrath for sin. It's time for him to take the place of sinners in death and judgment. It's time for him to remove the yeast. They don't see it, but he sees the time. And he sees the second thing. He sees their hearts. Notice beginning in verse 20. When it was evening... He reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes, as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Put yourself in this room. Verse 20, it's evening. 
The day's activities are over. It's time for the Passover meal. Back in Exodus, the law of God said that once you had the meal, when sundown had come, no one was to leave the house. You're in for the night. And 12 of you as apostles and Jesus the Lord. And you're reclining at table. The table would have been very low, with pillows around it. It would have sat on the floor, as it were, and perhaps leaned on one arm, or as Jesus often did, he would lean against John, the beloved disciple. And you're there with Jesus doing the most intimate of things between friends. You're sharing a meal. You're breaking bread together. You're comfortable. You're, you're relaxed. They seem not to have a care in the world. The preparations are made. Now it's time for the supper. In verse 21, as they were eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you. You've heard him use those words a thousand times. It's how he begins all of his teaching. The old King James puts it verily, verily. Truly, truly, I say to you. And maybe you ready yourself for the explanation of some parable, because often Jesus has taken you to private places and told you the deep meanings of parables. Or maybe you're prepared to hear him rebuke the scribes and Pharisees. He often would say to them, truly, I say to you, and he would explain the corruptions of their hearts. So, so maybe you're expecting a, another pronouncement of correction against the scribes and Pharisees. He says, truly, I say to you, and maybe you're thinking, here comes an exposition of the law. It's the Passover. It's appropriate to read from the books of Moses and to explain to your children what these things mean. And so maybe you're just ready for a, a good sermon from Jesus on the law. So you're not alerted necessarily, though you may be ready to hear. And what follows those words is not what you were expecting. Reclining at the table, intimate with Christ. He says, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. You had long since learned that when Jesus began a sentence with truly I say to you, write it down, make it plain. It was going to come to pass. It was true and unshakable truth. It was deep and penetrating truth. He spoke with authority unlike anybody else. He spoke in the authority of his own name. I say to you. Here was one who would speak and oftentimes reinterpret and redefine the very word of God. And he says with that formula, truly I say to you, and your heart is trusting what comes next. And what comes next is, one of you will betray me. We understand their reactions, don't we? When Matthew tells us here, verse 22, they were very sorrowful. And began to say to him one after another, is it I, Lord? The sorrow seems entirely appropriate, doesn't it? There's never been another one like Jesus, who loves perfectly, who teaches the truth, who cares for the poor and disenfranchised, and who promises a kingdom. It would be a heartbreaking thing to see someone like Jesus 
sold out by one of his own friends. They're very sorrowful. And then they begin to ask the question, is it I, Lord? What do you think about the fact that all of them asked this question? Only one of them had done anything to be thinking to themselves, oh Lord, he knows. But in turn, one after another, each of them asked the question, is it I, Lord? I think in that moment, each man recognized what's true of every man, that we're all sinners, and we're all capable of doing the things that we would that would shame us most. And so Peter, who is so often first, perhaps he was the one to say, is it I, Lord? James, John, Thomas, and the rest. And they keep asking that question, is it it I, Lord? And Jesus doesn't seem to be much help, right? Notice what Jesus says in verse 23, he who has dipped his hand in a dish with me will betray me. Come on, Jesus, throw me a bone. We all have had our hand in the bowl. And Jesus seems to be affirming what, what they must be suspecting, that, that each of us individually and all of us collectively are, 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 are prone to wander, as the hymn writer says, prone to leave the God we love. Then Jesus pronounces this woe in verse 24. The Son of Man goes as is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. What is Christ saying? What's about to happen to me has always been the plan. From before the foundation of the world and in the writing of Scripture, it has always been the plan that I should come and I should die for sinners take their place in God's judgment and open up the the gates of God's forgiveness. This is no surprise to me, but whoa, he uses that that word, that little three-letter word that that Old Testament prophets use so often. They would come either with a prophecy of will or blessing, or they'd come with a prophecy of woe. And the first word out of the prophet's mouth would often indicate what the message would be. And Jesus says here, whoa, agony. Judgment, shame, horror, woe to the one who betrays the Son of Man. He borrows that title from Daniel chapter 9, where Daniel has a vision of one like the Son of Man. He describes him going to the Ancient of Days, God the Father on his throne, and receiving from God the the, the right and the honor to be worshipped by all nations. Receives to himself glory and power and honor and majesty and dominion. Jesus says, woe to the one who betrays God's chosen one. It would be better for him not to have been born than to have done this. So the Lord's Supper becomes this place of confrontation, doesn't it? This place of self-examination and of judgment. This question, is it I, Lord? It's a question we ask or ought to when we come to this table. 
thinking on our past week and thinking on the past month, thinking on our relationships and, and the things we've done at work, the things we've done at home, the things we've done in open, and the things we've done in secret, and thinking about whether those things are demonstrations of fealty, of loyalty, of love to God, or whether or not there is in them some hint, some stain of betrayal. And we come to this table and here's Christ like Nathan confronting David saying, you're the man. When we ask, is it I, Lord? Is this exposure. As Christ sees not only the heart of Judas, but the heart of all men. He sees our heart. He knows our hypocrisy. He knows our inconsistency. He knows our driftings. Do you feel known at the table? Do you stop to consider when we come to the supper that we come not as people who simply know Jesus, but we come as people who are known by Jesus? That's what it is for us to be saved if we're Christians, that we are known by him. He has called us by name. He has loved us personally. He has given himself for us, and he has made us his very own. And he, he knows us. His eyes are always running to and fro throughout the whole earth, searching out the righteous and, and, and caring for his people. Not, not one hair falls from our head without him knowing. Nothing comes into our lives except that it goes through his hands. We are, we are known by him. We, he knows our frailties. He knows our faults. He, he knows our hopes. He knows our, our disappointments. Yes, he, he knows our sins, and he, and he knows our obediences too. And at first blush, it could make us tremble to be known so intimately. But when we think about it, and he's the one who knew his betrayer and loved him anyway. And he's the one who knows us and loves us anyway. It removes any incentive to play religious. It removes any incentive to wear the mask. It removes any incentive to, to perform and to, to put on a front, to, to try and be somebody that we're not. This is the place, the supper, where we can come be who we are and say, yes, Lord, I know it's I. It's me standing in need of prayer. It's me standing in need of your grace. It's me standing in need of your mercy. It's me again, O oh Lord. As the writer of Hebrews says in in chapter 4, verse 16, verse 15, he tells us we have a high priest who's been tempted in every way as we are. Then he gives us the application in verse 16. He says, we can come boldly to the throne of grace in our time of need and receive mercy. In that way, the table's a throne. It's where we receive his grace and his mercy as people who are known by Christ, who are his and who are loved if we're really in Christ. When Jesus sees, he sees the time, he sees our hearts, and he loves us anyway. Jesus sees would be terrifying if not for the third point. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. You see that there in verses 26 to 29? Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. 
And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Notice three things about how Jesus saves. He saves by a better sacrifice. See there in verses 26 to 28? He says, of the bread, take it, eat. This is my body given for you. He says, of the cup, of the wine, take and drink. This is my blood in the new covenant for the forgiveness of sins. He's redefining all those years of spreading the lamb's blood on doorposts. And all those years of eating bitter herbs and and roots. He's redefining all of those symbols in terms of his own life and his own sacrifice. The giving of his own body and his own blood. And the writers of the New Testament tell us, particularly Hebrews 8, Hebrews 9, that, that this is a far superior sacrifice than the sacrifice of bulls and goats. The sacrifice of bulls and goats in the old covenant system, it could never save. That's why every year the high priest had to go into the Holy of Holies and make the sacrifice over and over again. A sacrifice for the people and a sacrifice for himself as a sinner. But not Jesus. Jesus comes once and for all and makes the perfect sacrifice. And when he has made this sacrifice, he sits down at the right hand of the Father. No more sacrifices ever to be made. This broken body and this shed blood is God's final word to our sin. It's God's final word to our betrayals and our faults and our, and our driftings. It's God's, yes, I see you and I love you and you are mine and you can't get away from me. He says, my body broken for you. My blood shed for you for the remission, for the forgiveness of sins. This is how Christ saves. Laying down his life for us as an atonement for sin. That's what the cross is about. That's what the resurrection is about. That's what the Lord's Supper is about. Because here we proclaim his death until he comes. Here we remember his sacrifice for us. We break the wafer. We break the bread. And just as they did on that first night over 2,000 years ago, we picture the breaking of the Lord's body, whipped and beaten and stabbed with with spears and nailed to a cross. And here we bless and drink the cup. And we remember again the, the blood that poured from Calvary's cross. The blood that satisfied God's anger turned it away and was the payment price for our sin. Christ gives a better sacrifice and there are no more sacrifices to be made. Only trust his. Believe it was for you. Accept it by faith and repent of your sins. And maybe you're here this morning and you've never done that. You've maybe heard the the story of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection a thousand times, but you've never responded to it. Or maybe you're hearing it for the first time and you say, I I didn't know this. (laughs) You you don't need to be an expert in this. You simply need to believe this. You, You simply need to turn from your sin, confessing to God that, yes, what he knows about you, what he knows about me is true, that we're all sinners. And turn to God and accept what he has done for you, for me, because of our sin. He's given his son to pay the price, to be our righteousness, and to bring us forgiveness. And if you're here this morning, 
You don't need a college degree. You don't need a high school degree. You, you, don't, you don't need to be, have been in the church decades of your life. You don't need to be in church at all to reply to this message in repentance and faith. That is, in turning away from sin and believing in Jesus and following him as your Lord and your God. There's nothing more we would like to do than help you understand that and help you make that turn and help you follow Christ. So if you would stick around after the service, if that's you and you have questions or you want to know more about how to do that, if you would stick around after the service and talk to me or talk to the Christian friend that brought you or talk to any of the pastors here, any of the members here, because this is the one essential requirement for membership, that we know this message and believe it, we would like nothing more than to help you follow Jesus and receive God's forgiveness. This is the best sacrifice for you that you will ever encounter. Jesus saves by a better sacrifice and he saves us into a better relationship. You see that there in verse 28? That reference to the word covenant. Covenant is another word for relationship. And God is always related to his people through a covenant. And he had promised centuries ago that he was going to make a new covenant with his people. And and Jesus here now is telling us that that promise made hundreds of years before his time is now about to be enacted. There's going to be a signing of a new marriage compact, if you will. It'll be signed in Christ's blood. It will be established by his sacrifice. And we will with God have this new relationship that Jeremiah tells us is not an outward relationship where God gives us commands and laws written on stones and and we have this uncertain relationship based upon how well we perform. No, it's sweeter than that. It's It's a relationship where God by his spirit writes his law on our hearts where he gives us a new heart and gives us a a new life and and he sends his spirit into our lives by faith. And so we are united to Christ by faith. And all that we need to satisfy God, Christ has done. And all that he has done has become ours by that faith. So that now there is nothing that can separate us from God's love. Nothing, not, not famine, not peril, not persecution, not sword, not death. There's nothing that can rip us out of this relationship with God through faith in Christ. We have a better covenant. We have a better relationship that cannot be broken. For God has promised and he does not lie. And all of his promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ our Lord. He's given a better sacrifice. He's brought a better relationship. And number three, he saves. He saves us for a better future. You see it there in verse 29. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. See them in that room again. Evening time. Reclining at the table. Eating together out of the shared bowls. And Jesus says, one of you will betray me. Feel the sorrow that enters that room. The music stops. The hearts stop. And Jesus keeps talking. And he says, this bread is my body broken for you. This blood, this cup is my blood spilled for you for the forgiveness of your sins. And maybe there's hope that enters your heart. 
And then with these last words, he lifts your eyes from yourself. And he causes you to glance all the way to the coming kingdom of God. And he says in verse 29, I'm not going to eat this with you again. I'm about to be crucified. But let's make a date. When I come back to get you and bring you into my father's kingdom, I'm going to spread a table before you in the presence of all of my enemies and your enemies. And we are going to sup together. It's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. There'll be a great feast and a great throng of people and, and we will eat together and drink together and rejoice together, not in a temporary fashion, but, but life then will be the beginning of eternal joy and everlasting celebration. For I will give you what I promised you when I died for you. Eternal life with me in the Father's kingdom. So the table becomes not just the looking back and remembering what Christ did, but a looking forward and anticipating what is to come. We will sing with him and sup with him and rejoice with him forever. Praise the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, this morning, this morning, we remember that night. That night when your son was betrayed by Judas, by one like us. And we remember the teaching of that night. That even in the midst of men's anger and friend's betrayal you were demonstrating your love for us you demonstrated your love for us in this while we were still sinners your son Christ Jesus died for us and not only did he die for us but he rose for us he, he rose for our justification and he rose with the keys of life and death of heaven and hell and he has called us into a share of that kingdom how wretched must our sins be that they would require the death of your son and how immense must your love be that without price from us, you would forgive us. How secure must our relationship with you be if we could come to this table or at any moment admit our weakness, our corruption, our sin, which, which grieves us, and still be confident of your grace and your mercy, and your love. We praise you for all that you have done for us. Never let us forget it. Etch it into our hearts. 
Stamp it upon our minds. Fix our eyes upon your coming. Feed us by faith at this table we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, having meditated on the table, let us continue in preparation to now observe the supper. And as we observe